Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples amongst whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, before we come to this passage, let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, I agree um, wholeheartedly with the prayers that, that Ruth lifted up uh, just a moment ago um, for our world, for our nation, um, for our communities. Um, Father, there are many places around the world where we see uh, the need uh, for justice. Uh, and with the passage in front of us, um, we are reminded that you are a God of justice, that you are a God uh, who is worthy of us bringing these prayers in front of you, uh, especially, um, especially when we look at situations um, that uh, seem too big for us even to figure out, much less uh, to actually execute justice, actually to, to bring it about. Um, Father, I pray um, as, we, as we come before your word um, that you would remind us that you are a God who is uh, not far off, that you are a God who is um, both high and lifted up, but also near to the brokenhearted uh, and to the afflicted. Um, whether we're talking about the brokenhearted and afflicted uh, in Gaza or in Ukraine uh, or in Maine um, or right here uh, in Newton uh, and Wellesley uh, and in all the towns uh, around it uh, that we live in and work in um, and go to school in, um, whether it's the brokenhearted in our, in our families, um, whether it's the brokenhearted among uh, our, our friends, uh, you are near to them. Father, our hearts uh, not only uh, are, are, are broken with grief, um, but in many ways we see in ourselves the same bent uh, against you um, that gives rise to injustice in the first place. We have already confessed our sin and we have already heard uh, the declaration of the forgiveness that you have worked for us in, in Christ. Uh, and so we don't come before you um, looking to transact with you, looking to, to in some way um, pay for our guilt, because you have done it already. Uh, you have done it. We are here to enjoy the fruits of, of what you have done. Um, but among those fruits um, is the Spirit that Jesus promised that he would send. Um, so Holy Spirit, uh, because you have promised to be with us, we pray uh, that as we come uh, to this passage, uh, to a passage that uh, we don't read often, um, that is hard for us to understand, um, but we pray, uh, nonetheless, that you would do the work that only you can do uh, through your word, um, that you would be faithful to your promise that your word does not go out uh, from you and return without accomplishing its purpose. Lord, we, we pray uh, that we might leave today looking more like Jesus than when we came in, and we pray um, for prayer, 
Uh, we pray that even in this service, there would be moments um, when we would be drawn uh, to worship you, uh, to cry out to you, uh, to praise you, uh, to give you thanks, uh, to lament. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, this, this time uh, that you have given us would be time um, spent in worship, in spirit, and in truth. Father, I pray, uh, as I always do, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, if you're feeling lost, um, check out the outline, um, which is there uh, on the, um, uh, in, the, in the order of service. Um, we are in sermon number eight uh, today, and so you can see that where we are um, is in this long section, smack in the middle of Ezekiel, uh, of about 22 chapters consisting almost entirely of judgment. Um, last week, we looked at judgment against the nation of Israel, and this week, uh, we are looking at judgment uh, against the nations. Well, and, and given that we have said that the reason that we're looking at Ezekiel, that what we're trying to do here uh, this fall, is to get our minds around the concept of the presence of God, the significance, the importance of God's presence, and we have defined God's presence as His awe-inspiring, ever-present power to give life and strength to his people. And you might say, in the midst of all of these chapters about judgment, I can see how God's presence is awe-inspiring. I can even see how it might be awful. Uh, I can see the holiness of God. But how do we comprehend that a God of justice, a God of judgment, a God who judges evil, um, is one who gives life and strength um, to his people? Um, there are two phrases that are repeated throughout these 22 chapters, um, and, and throughout the book of Ezekiel, but with particular concentration in these 22 chapters. Um, one of them uh, is the phrase, then I, they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Um, the other, uh, not as frequently repeated, but several times in these chapters, uh, is, the, is, is the phrase that God takes no pleasure uh, in the death of the wicked. What we're going to see uh, in these chapters um, is that God is a God who works his act of salvation by revealing himself as the God that he truly is. Uh, the reason that I put uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, right there in the front of your bulletin uh, as, as one of the quotes was, I wanted to remind us uh, and, and have it fresh on our minds the way that God revealed himself to Moses as a God who on the one hand um, is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, uh, a God of mercy, but at the same time a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, he is a God of perfect justice and of perfect mercy um, at the same time. Um, the astounding uh, thing that we're going to see in these, in these chapters, there's really just two things. There's two things that we're going to see in this chapter. One is that, no doubt about it, God is a God of justice. Uh, God is a God who will not clear the guilty. God is a God who will not let evil stand. Um, and in our world, as we've mentioned already, as we've uh, looked at the psalm and as we've prayed, um, our world uh, is a world 
full of evil, uh, a world in which it is good dudes to hear that there is a God of justice and that evil won't have the last word. Um, so on the one hand, God is the sovereign Lord of justice, and yet at the same time, as we look at the way he speaks to these nations uh, who have committed evil, who have uh, oppressed uh, Israel, or sometimes just kind of stood back and laughed while Israel fell, um, as he speaks words of judgment at the same time, shockingly, he speaks to them as though he were their own father. He speaks to them with a tenderness that holds out the question, might this God actually be acting for salvation through the act of judgment? So again, we're going to see God is the sovereign Lord of justice, um, but at the same time, a God who works salvation through judgment and who offers hope even for those uh, that he is, is judging. Um, whoever put these chapters together in the order uh, that they're in uh, knew how to build some narrative tension. Um, when we came to the end of our passage last time, so 12 through 24 again, that was all the judgment against Israel, right? Um, and it ended, at the end of it, it ended with this prediction. If you remember, I mentioned like the timing of these things. It was all kind of, all these prophecies from Ezekiel were timed before the actual fall of Jerusalem. And in 24, the last of the prophecies was a fugitive is going to come and is going to announce uh, that Jerusalem has actually fallen. Um, and so we're kind of waiting for that to happen, right? Um, but first, there are these judgments spoken against the nation, uh, nations, uh, nine, nine chapters of them. Um, the language in them is really similar uh, to the language of the judgments that were uh, spoken against Israel uh, in, our, in our passage from, from last week. You know, and the meaning of this is, is pretty simple, um, and it's something that God has been saying throughout the Old Testament, um, from the time that the people entered the promised land, if not before, which is, which is simply that although God has chosen Israel, he's elected Israel as, as his people, um, nevertheless, if his people turn away from him, then they'll be treated exactly the same as all of the other nations. Um, and what we're seeing here uh, as, as God's people are being sent into exile is simply the fulfillment uh, of those of those promises, because there is no partiality um, with with this God. Um, so let's take a look at these at these oracles. Obviously, um, we're not as we've been doing with all of these uh, sermons that have been covering you know ten chapter chunks, twelve chapter chunks. Um, we're not going to be able to read uh, and look at every single verse, but I want us to get the the gist um, of what God is is saying. Um, in, these, in these chapters. So, in chapters 25 through 32, judgment is spoken against seven nations. Um, they are Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. Those, those seven. And the structure of these is interesting because in the first half of our section, you get the judgments spoken against six of those. Um, then you get the verses that I actually had Bryce read, um, which are these brief 
little verses right in the middle of the section uh, that we're looking at today in, in chapter 28, um, where there is a little bit of a note of hope spoken for Israel, and we'll come back to that. And then after that, the second half of our section is the seventh oracle, and it's all directed at one nation. It's all directed at Egypt. So we have six kind of short ones uh, directed at the first six nations, and then the long section uh, directed against, against Egypt. Um, if you were to look at a map of, of Israel, you could actually see um, that what the prophet is doing is kind of working his way clockwise around uh, the nation, um, starting in the east and moving all the way around uh, to the southwest and then, and then up to the, to the northwest, um, going from Ammon to Moab to Edom to Philistia and around to Tyre and, and, and Sidon. Um, most of these nations um, were pretty small players on the geopolitical scene at the time, um, with the exception of Egypt. Egypt was a major power. The major powers of this time were Egypt, uh, and then Assyria, and then Babylon. And one of the first things that you see, one of the main points that you see in, in all of these judgments as God talks about how these nations are going to fall um, is that God is a God who is sovereign over all of it. That however it may seem, whoever the major powers are, whether it's Egypt and then Assyria rises and then they fall and then Babylon comes and later it's going to be Persia, as all of that is happening, all this geopolitical stuff, God is the God who is sovereign. He is Lord over the whole thing. And he literally uses these nations um, as they rise and as they fall as his instrument. So to most of these nations, uh, he says, you're going to fall to Babylon. Babylon's on the rise at this time. Um, he specifically calls out Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the emperor of, of, of Babylon, as being his instrument. Just as later, um, when Babylon falls to Persia, um, God says, now I've lifted up my servant Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, uh, to come and, and exact justice uh, against, against Babylon. One of the astonishing claims of the Bible um, is that it is the God of one of the tiny and insignificant nations who is actually the Lord of all of them. Um, that it's not the God of Babylon, that it's not the God of Egypt, that it's not the God of Assyria um, that is on top of the heap. Um, that it's not that there are multiple gods and whichever nation is on the ascendancy, that God must also be on the ascendancy. Throughout all of this period, as nations are rising and falling, um, throughout all of it, there's one Lord, and it's the God of this tiny, insignificant little people um, Israel, uh, that he is not just God there in his own local space there in Israel, but that he's God everywhere. Um, that is one of the astonishing claims um, of the Bible. That claim might feel pretty remote to you. Um, when you think about the relevance of what I just said, um, chances are you are not wondering whether the God of Egypt is actually Lord of all. Um, or the God of, to put it in modern terms, a God of 
China uh, or a God of Russia or a God of America. Um, that's not the way that we really think um, about, about gods. Um, let me put the question differently. Let me, let me ask you this. When you are here on Sunday, when you're with God's people, you know, when you're here, when you're here at the church, um, we have kind of a common language, we have a common culture. Um, all of us are here um, at the very least because we're thinking about Jesus. Uh, many of us are here because we've actually put our faith in Jesus, and we come here in order to worship him. Um, and so here in this place on Sunday, it can feel really easy to feel like, okay, God is God. God is in charge. When we talk about things that are going on in our week and how we're thinking through it and how we're approaching it, we talk about looking for God to save. We talk about prayer, right? That comes readily to our lips. Like, this is how we're going to deal with these things. We're going to pray about it. We're going we're to rely on him. What happens when you go to work tomorrow? Or when you go to school tomorrow? Or when you're in the home of a friend? Um, without that, that common faith, um, you lose that common language. You lose that common culture. And it can seem as though when you leave church on Sunday and head out into the workplace or school, it can seem like someone else is in charge. It can seem like there are other gods. We may not think of it in that way, um, but it can seem as though uh, there are other gods. Where, where, where does that happen for you? Where is it that it can seem like when you leave this space, um, someone or something else determines what happens and why? There's some other power structure at work. Um, one of the, it would have been astonishing. I mean, think about reading this while Israel is being carted off into exile. Think about the laughter that would ensue if Israel was being carted off into exile, and meanwhile, there are prophecies of judgment uh, against these other nations. Um, but that is the claim that's being made here, that no matter where you or I go, no matter who it seems is in charge, there is always only one God. There's only one Lord. So that's the first claim here, that there is a God of justice, that there is a God who is not going to let evil stand that there is a God who is going to bring justice to all the places that we long to see it and all the places that we're powerless to bring it. Um, and it is the God of the Bible. That's the first claim. But here's the second thing, and this is in some ways more shocking, that as God speaks uh, all these words of judgment against all of these different nations, the six in the first half, and then a lengthy several chapters of judgment against Egypt. Um, he speaks as though he is their father, and he speaks with a tenderness. Um, he speaks with almost a grief uh, over the judgment that he is bringing against them. Um, in chapters 27 and 28, he speaks to uh, Tyre, so of the, of the six, in the first half, Tyre gets the longest, gets two and a half whole chapters. Um, 
In chapters 27 and 28, it's hard to avoid the impression that God actually delights in the strength of this nation. In chapter 27, he talks about kind of its economic strength, and then in chapter 28, he turns specifically to the king. And it's hard to avoid the impression that he actually delights in the fact that Tyre was this economic power, that, that being an economic power in and of itself isn't a bad thing, um, that being a powerful king in and of itself isn't, isn't a bad thing. Um, chapter 28 even includes language that comes straight out of the creation story. Um, in verse 13 of, of chapter 28, God is talking to the, the king of Tyre. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Um, again, it's hard to escape the impression that God actually delights in the fact that this king was given power to rule, that he was given authority, that he was given the same kind of power to, to rule and to subdue the earth that was given to Adam, um, and that what he's lamenting, it, it, it reads as a lament over Tyre, and one of the things that it's, is being lamented is how, just like Adam fell, just like Adam wanted to see himself in the place of God. The king of Tyre has done the same thing. He's taken that power, and he's taken that authority, and he's made himself out to be God, so that the fall of Tyre looks almost exactly like the fall of humanity itself, and is lamented in the same way. One of the really early commentators on this, on this passage looked at this, at this chapter and said, how good God is, who mourns even those who deny him. And this derives from the effect of love, for no one mourns someone he hates. Again, throughout these chapters is, is repeated this refrain, God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He mourns and laments even the death of these nations that don't know him, uh, that don't turn uh, toward him. This, of course, is why um, I asked Ruth to read Psalm 87. Um, it, is, it is a psalm rich with this kind of language um, where God uh, looks um, at nations like Babylon and like Philistia and like Tyre um, and says, this one was born in Zion. This is one of my peoples. There's a tenderness there. We forget sometimes, um, we did a whole sermon series on this uh, a couple summers back, we forget sometimes that God's people, the nation of Israel and the church, uh, God's people are called to be a blessing to all nations, um, that we're called to exist for the sake of blessing outside of ourselves. Um, we forget sometimes that when Abraham was called in Genesis 12, um, that, that story, that story of his being called, followed immediately after 11 chapters um, that tell the story of all of humanity, where it came from, how it fell. Um, and when God calls Abraham, 
Some of the things that he says to him respond directly to the problems that exist in all nations. Um, he, tells, he tells Abraham, you're not going to make a name for yourself. And that's immediately after a story uh, in which humanity tried to build a tower in order to make a name uh, for itself. This whole story of God calling a people was his response to the fall of all of humanity. And here, God, as he speaks these words of judgment uh, against these nations, is reminding us, these peoples that he's judging, uh, these peoples who have committed evil and who need to be judged, are still his. Earlier, I, I, I talked about how, in our situation, when we enter into our workplace, uh, it might seem like some other god is in charge. Uh, it might seem like some other power structure um, is, the, is the dominant one. Um, but if God is a god who wants to bless the nations, uh, who, who, who wants his people to be about the good of all peoples, um, then how is it that we can act in those settings? Um, how is it that we can demask, uh, even dethrone uh, some of these other gods? Um, I'll give one example. When I was a, a grad student, um, on a, a couple of occasions, you know, grad school is uh, hard. Um, a lot of life is hard. Um, but grad school was really hard. Uh, there was a lot of pressure. There was not a lot of time. Um, I remember when we first showed up, one of the first like real meaningful conversations that we had after we had gotten to know each other for just a couple weeks, you know, we kind of went around the circle and like somebody asked, like, "Hey, what what's everyone's greatest fear?" I have no idea why that came up, but what's everyone's greatest fear? Went around the circle: failure, 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 failure. Um, everybody was afraid of the same thing just failing out. Um, as I was there for a while, on a couple of occasions, um, in the midst of the most stressful parts of grad school, like leading up to general exams, um, or, or, or going out and doing your job market talk, where like literally everything you've done is building to this point, where are you gonna work? Um, some of my closest friends would ask how are you surviving this? Like, how are you bearing up? Um, how are you not, I feel like I'm about to collapse. How are you not collapsing? And I was able to tell them. Because this thing that we're doing, that we're investing all of our time in, this is not who I am. This is not my identity. Um, this is not my source of significance. And I got to tell them, about who I am. I got to tell them about where my significance does come from. I got to tell them about a God uh, who had accepted me before I could perform in any way, um, as opposed to a system that says you perform first, and then maybe you'll be accepted. Um, those opportunities can take a long time to build to. Um, One of the things that we ought to be about is praying for God to show us where they are. 
where is it that we can demask uh, the other gods? As we come to the end of this passage, um, there is some ambiguity about it. Um, as, as God is lamenting, there are laments for Tyre, there are laments uh, for Egypt. Um, the Egypt section is really worth reading, by the way. Um, we, we, part of the reason we've given you this outline, we know that we can't go verse by verse, um, but it'd be great for you to go back and like read these sections as we're going through, and the Egypt section is really interesting. Um, even as God is lamenting over these nations who have committed evil, uh, who have uh, acted against Israel, and he's coming in now to judge them, there's not exactly a promise of hope for them. There's not exactly a promise that they will be saved. Um, that sort of thing does show up in Isaiah. That sort of thing does show up in Jeremiah. Um, so there are other prophets that speak about how the nations will be gathered together. Um, it's not quite there in Ezekiel. And, and what that leaves us with, I think, um, is a really deliberate um, ambiguity. Here's, here's, here's what's going on. Um, God says repeatedly, they will know that I am the Lord. He says that mostly in conjunction with punishment. Um, when I judge them, uh, they will know that I am the Lord. Um, grace, that by the way was the same thing that God said about Israel as he judged them. Okay, so what we have is this universal, like you're all going to know that I am the Lord as I judge. Now, as we leave this section, next week we're, we're leaving behind uh, the section that's been all judgment, and we're going to start uh, the good part of Ezekiel, um, where there is good news, where there is restoration uh, being promised. Um, and what we'll see there um, is that God is acting for his own name, for his own reputation. He's going to put his grace on display as he does act to save uh, Israel. What that means is that what these other nations are going to see is on the one hand a God who judges them, but a God who can be gracious, a God who can offer salvation. And what that means is that these nations are having the whole gospel put in front of them, the bad news and the good news. The bad news that on the one hand, God is deathly serious about sin that God is a God who does not leave sin unanswered. He does not clear the guilty. Um, but at the same time, that he is a God uh, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who forgives, a God who offers forgiveness to those who turn back uh, to him. And that ambiguity puts the question in front of these nations, what are they going to do with that? Are they going to pay attention? Are they going to hear the invitation implicit in all these things? What are they going to do with that? What do we do with that? What do we do with the invitation that's put in front of us when we see that God is a God who takes our sins seriously, 
uh, who judges it, but a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, a God who calls us uh, to repent. Miroslav Volf, in his, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, points out that when Jesus went around calling people to repent, it was one of the most crucial ways in which he treated them as being fully human. It was like God referring to the nations as his children, speaking tenderly to them. Here's what Wolf said. Um, he's talking about the places where Jesus is, is, is dealing with injustice and then shockingly calls those who are being oppressed to repent alongside of the oppressors. Uh, Wolf says it will not do to divide Jesus' listeners neatly into two groups and claim that for the oppressed, repentance means new hope, whereas for the oppressors only, it means radical change. The truly revolutionary character of Jesus' proclamation lies precisely in the connection between the hope he gives to the oppressed and the radical change he requires of them. These chapters that we've been looking at, um, as I say, they are full of judgment. Uh, 22 chapters, judgment against Israel, judgment against the nations. They're, they're, they're hard to read, um, and the question has been, how is it that this is how God is giving life and strength to his people? And I would suggest it's simply this, that God is being as clear as he possibly can be about what he says in Isaiah 30, that our salvation lies in repentance. Our salvation lies in resting in him, in turning away from sin and turning back uh, to him. We've noted a lot of places in the book of Ezekiel where you read this and you ask yourself, what could these people have possibly been making of what God had to say to them. Uh, as, we, as we come to the end of these chapters, as we come to the end of chapter 32, um, as we come to chapter 33, where by the way, in chapter 33, the narrative tension is finally broken because that fugitive shows up. Jerusalem has fallen. That's the turning point of the whole book. It's finally happened. Jerusalem has fallen. And the words that finish up that chapter just like the words that finish up the judgments against the nation, really lead only one place, which is to the grave. So the judgment that's coming is going to be like going down into the pit. What would they have made of this? Amazing thing for us uh, is that we're able to make something much different of it uh, because we know what God did with the grave. We know what it means when we talk about God sending our sin to the grave. That he did it by putting it on his son. That he did it by sending his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that in order that his son would bear the judgment, would bear our sin into the grave. We're turning this corner uh, in the book of Ezekiel where the only possible hope 
that these people could hold would be for resurrection. Um, and we'll see that there are going to be prophecies of exactly that sort uh, when we get to uh, the section on restoration, uh, on, on redemption. And again, what could they have made of it? But for us, we know who this is pointing at. As we turn to our Savior, uh, who was crucified uh, for our sins uh, and then raised for our salvation, who invites us uh, to come to this table. The appeal at the end of this section is, is the same as what we saw last week in the, in, in the judgments against Israel. God sets before his people life and death and says, why will you die? Why not rather come and be fed? We talk about this table sometimes as being our first act of repentance, that after hearing God's word, the first thing that we do is say, yes, he is the one that I need. The meal that he spreads before us is the one that we need uh, to be nourished. So, before we come, let's bow our heads one, one more time and let's pray.